you know, we've been preaching through the book of Genesis, but we took a little seven, eight-week break here in the summer, a hiatus, to look at the seven churches of Asia Minor. The Apostle John, the last living apostle in 90 AD, is writing from the island of Patmos to these seven churches in Asia Minor, which is sort of modern-day Turkey. And what we've been seeing is that each of these churches that Jesus is addressing through John have an identity. And in a lot of ways, their identity sort of shapes who they are and sort of what they are strong in and then what they are weak at. And Jesus is taking an opportunity to commend them on the grace that he sees in their life and because he loves them, speaking into their life, into their identity and who he really desires them to be, who he's shaping them to be. And so as we've seen at the church in Ephesus, for example, it was a truth-filled church. They loved God's word, but the problem is they didn't really love each other. And then we get into the church at Smyrna, and, and, and man, they're just a faithful church, but they're also a church that's just so full of fear. And then last week, the church in Pergamum, they're an enduring church. They're a fruitful church, but they're in danger of becoming a compromising church. And so in each of these situations, Jesus is speaking in, right into their identity, right into who they are. And we said, hey, Four Oaks, is it too much to say as a church family for the summer of 2019 that we come to him with a similar posture and saying, Lord, you've been gracious to us. You have, you've done amazing things in our lives, but we're asking you to show us where we can grow. Where, 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 can, where can we be more holy? Where can we be more faithful? How can, how can we run after, endure, and persevere in our Christian walk? And that brings us to church number four this morning, the church in Thyra Tyra, who is wrestling with the issue of tolerance. Now, historically, tolerance, when we think about even the founding of our own country, historically, tolerance has mean that we can not like each other. In fact, we can disagree vehemently with each other, but what we're agreeing to do is to not kill each other, right? We can live in the same space in relative peace. But as we know in the 21st century, tolerance has been redefined to mean something more like no judgment allowed, no evaluation, no critique. In fact, one of the unforgivable cultural sins is to be labeled what? Intolerant. But as we're going to see at the church in Thyatira this morning, God's kingdom flips this like it does everything upside down. And we're going to find out that Jesus tells the church there and then Jesus tells us that there is a certain kind of spiritual tolerance that will kill your soul. There's a certain kind of of spiritual tolerance that will bring only death, only only destruction, only pain, only despair. In fact, if I can be so bold as to say, Jesus is going to extol for us in the church in Thyatira this morning the virtue of intolerance. And so, sort of with that provocative title on our lips this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand and let's see indeed what Jesus has to say to the church in Thyatira and what he has to say to us. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God 
who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead." And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, there's sometimes we come to your word, and there's just hard things in it. And it's difficult to to rearrange the furniture of our heart to to really hear and receive what you have for us and when that happens lord that's a sure sign that you're wanting to do a work you're wanting to 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 move in our hearts with mercy and grace and lord that can be a painful process it was painful for this church in Thyatira. it's painful for us but lord we know it's for our good Lord, we know that you, you love us, and this is why you're speaking this word to us. We ask now that you would bless our time, open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Jesus opens this letter to the church in Thyatira, just like he does with all the other churches in Asia Minor. He, he, he starts things off with an encouragement, with a commendation. Look at verse 19. He says, listen, church, I know about your love and your faith and your service. I know about your patient endurance. Now, remember, Thyatira was probably founded in connection with one of Paul's missionary journeys through Asia Minor, probably 30 years prior. And so this church has been around for almost a generation now. And we know in Thyatira that this was not a cultural hotbed of elites and cosmopolitan learning and those sorts of things like some of these other churches were. No, 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 no. Thyatira was a blue-collar town. It was a union place to live. And you had lots of men and women who worked with their hands, wool, linen, garments. There were potters, bakers, bronze smiths. In fact, we get a glimpse of this because in the first convert in Asia Minor was, or or in Greece actually, or one of the first, was a woman that Paul ran into in the city of Philippi, and her name in Acts 16 was what? 
Lydia. And where does, what does it say she was? She was a seamstress. She made clothes, linens, garments. And where was she from? Thyatira, of course. And so we, we know that this was, a, this, was, this was a meat and potatoes kind of crowd. This was a hard-working city, a hard-working group. And having been there 30 years, I can imagine, church, that this, these people had seen their share of pain and suffering, premature deaths, wayward children, broken marriages, I'm sure, but yet they persevered, yet they endured, they were faithful, they were not a one-hit wonder, right? For those of who were kids in the 80s, they were not the Dexys midnight runners of church plants, right? Come on, Eileen, everybody, oh, never mind, forget it. They were a work of persevering witness. In fact, it says their later works exceeded, their latter works exceeded their first works, so they were growing in grace. In a lot of ways, as I read this, it reminded me a little bit of who we are as a church family. Do you know that Four Oaks is coming up on its 30-year anniversary? And by God's grace, we're a church of three congregations that um, is seeking to be faithful. I think in a lot of ways that by God's grace, maybe our latter works are 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 better than our first. And by that, I mean there's been a, a slow progress, a sanctification, um, an endurance, a perseverance, and God has been incredibly good for us and good to us. And let me just say, I think when we read a passage like this, we, we need to understand. Jesus commends us. We need to be thankful. It's easy to take a church like this for granted that it's always going to be around. We know that's not how it always works. And so we want to be thankful. We want to give praise to God. We want to thank him for his, his grace. And, and we want to be a church that's constantly seeking out what God has for us next. God, what do you want to do with us? Lord, you've been faithful. Now, how will you continue to demonstrate that faithfulness? How can we grow in grace and faithfulness in our own lives? And that's, I think, the church in Thyatira, which brings us to verse 20. I commend you, and then verse 20, the first word is what? But. You knew that was coming, right? It's kind of like when you've been dating someone a short while, and you get the talk. You know the talk, you know what I'm saying? You're a great guy. You're awesome. You're this, you're this, you're that. And what comes next? But. This might be the last time that we see each other, right? Or, or, or parents, you're at a parent-teacher conference and you get all these commendations of how your child is doing, or it's your annual review and you're hearing about all the, all the ways that you've excelled this year in your job, but you're always waiting for that other shoe to drop, right? Well, here's the other shoe. When Jesus says, but, or nevertheless, I have this against you. And that word against... It literally means to be in opposition to. And, and, this is, and this is hard for us as postmoderns because we typically think about relationships as being one or the other. Either our relationships are affirmation, 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 or our relationships are distant and conflictual. And by the way, if you're in a, any kind of relationship, friendship or otherwise, where it's either one or the other, we call that dysfunctional. 
right? We call that dysfunctional. We call that codependent. But see, here with Jesus, we need to understand that both of these come together. It is possible to simultaneously love someone, to encourage them, to commend them, but also to love them so much that you're willing to speak truth and correction into their lives. And boy, does Jesus ever do that. He has seemingly a central correction or charge against them. And look in verse 20, he spells that out clearly. It's where the title of this sermon comes from. I have this to commend you for, but this I have against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. And just a guess as you're flipping through that baby book looking for cool girl names, Jezebel's probably not there. Or if it is, God bless your little girl. We need to anoint her after the service, right? See, Jezebel was sort of the Voldemort of the Old Testament, right? She who must not be named. If you were, if you were, if you were a Jew and you heard the word Jezebel, you went running for the hills, because there was probably no one in all of the Old Testament that was a greater arch enemy to the people of God except maybe Pharaoh or someone like that. But 1 Kings 16 gives us just a very quick refresher course if you're not familiar with this character Jezebel. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And let me just pause and say, that's saying something, right? If you look at the, if you look at the, the, the greatest hits of, of the evil kings in Israel's history, to say that he was more evil than all who came before him, that is no small feat. Then it says, verse 31, tongue-in-cheek, and as if it had been a light thing for him, like a no-big-deal thing to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife, this is the first time we see her in Scripture, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbael, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for, Bar- for, for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hill of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gate at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. You know, what does all that tell us? Ahab was a wicked dude, but he was nothing compared to his wife, this pagan Gentile Baal-worshipping queen that he took into his house. Nothing, nothing prepared Israel for this. You see, under God had made it explicitly clear, the nation of Israel and the pagan cultures around them don't go together. They, 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 they're, to be, they're to be pure, and Israel's to be set apart and holy. And by no means was Israel to ever enter into an alliance with a foreign country by the intermarriage of kings and queens. But yet, Ahab leads Israel right into this. And it's sort of like inviting the the person convicted of abuse into your home to take care of your children, the the fox into the hen house. She clearly 
influenced is a light word, but stepped on the accelerator for Israel to take them down a path of utter destruction. Remember the, the episode with Elijah the prophet. Jezebel was, was, was so wicked, was so influential, was so powerful, she had that mighty man of God on the run. When she came over and married Ahab, she brought her idols with her, Baal and Asherah. She, she brought her priests. She brought her rituals of sacrifices. She influenced her husband to do what should never have been done, which is to give permission for the city of Jericho. Remember Jericho? The walls came tumbling down seven times around. Your kids sing about, right? God said, don't ever rebuild that place. If you do, it's going to cost lives of people who do it. Ahab presided over all of this, he and his wife, Jezebel. And it says that in the text here that Jezebel has reappeared, so to speak, in Thyatira in this church. Now, obviously, Jezebel here um, is, a, is a metaphor. It was probably a singular person, probably a woman, because he does call her a prophetess, who sort of imbibed or embodied the spirit of Jezebel and had many in the church who were following after her. And in a lot of the ways, she was just like the Old Testament Jezebel in that she was essentially saying this, you can have Jesus, you can have the church, you can have God over here, but you can have debauchery, sin, worldliness over there. You can have it all. You don't have to choose. And as you can imagine, there was people in the church that were like, I can sign up for that, right? That's, that sounds pretty good. Now, specifically, we know what, what this error was. We talked about it last week at the Church of Pergamum. Remember, to practice your trade in the ancient Near East, you had to be a part of the guild, the trade union. You had to have your union card. And particularly in a town like Thyatira, everybody was a part of a guild, but being a part of a guild wasn't just the good old boys getting together on Friday night and playing darts and drinking beer. It was, it was much more than that. You see, each guild had its own patron god or goddess. And, and part of being a part of the guild was that you would come together periodically, you would worship this god, you would make sacrifices, then you would get drunk and culminate the evening in sexual debauchery with temple prostitutes. And there were some in the church who were saying, come on, just, just relax. Take your foot off the accelerator. There's no need to make that kind of demarcation and that kind of choice. Don't make life so difficult on yourself. You see, there's, you can have the spiritual parts of your life. You can go to church, and you can have your community of friends. You can even have your family, and by all means, your job. But this other stuff, it's just personal, right? It's just private. It's just your, it's your own choice. It's something that you can sort of keep cordoned off over here. It's not a big deal. And so it's to this spirit of Jezebel that Jesus is speaking directly to. And of course, we know very well the spirit of Jezebel because we are confronted with it every day as the people of God. See, every day, Satan would want to deceive us into believing that we can indeed have it all. 
We could have Christ and the world. And, and once we begin to monkey around or tory around with that deception, we know that the spirit of Jezebel begins to infect everything that we come into contact with, right? It infects our sex lives. It infects our money and our relationships, our Netflix accounts, our calendars, our priorities, our computers. You and I know the list goes on and on. And look in verse 20, it says they tolerated this spirit. Now the word tolerate in verse 20 means to be indulgent towards to settle down and to grow comfortable with, to live at peace, to live at peace. Now, here's what I find interesting about this church, and we see this in verses 19 and 24. We can deduce that not all of the church, and probably, in fact, much of the church wasn't involved in this sexual immorality or meat sacrifice to idols or trade guilds. Most of them probably weren't involved in that at all. Look at verse 24. It says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan to you, I say, do not lay on you any other burden. We know in verse 19 he's already commended them. What's scary about this passage is that Jesus as well holds them responsible. See, They may have been faithful in their personal lives, but they had decided they just weren't going there with their friend and neighbor. It's just too hard. They'll think I'm judgmental. They'll think I'm I'm intolerant. Who wants that kind of conflict? I don't want to have to live in that sort of tension day in and day out. After all, Pastor Paul, I'm not personally involved in this, right? I'm not actually going to the temple. I'm just living at peace with those who do. Interestingly, speaking about speaking of Netflix, the there's a there's a documentary called The Accountant of Auschwitz that's on that's running right now. It's about the trial of a man who's a former former um, SS soldier officer in the Nazi army, and he is 92 or 93 at the time of this filming, and he's going on trial because he had, in fact, served at Auschwitz. And it's interesting, it's called the accountant at Auschwitz because his job, his primary job at, this, at Auschwitz, at the concentration camp where hundreds of thousands of Jews were exterminated, was simply to collect the money from all the Jews who were coming into the camp. That's all he did, he just collected the money. What was interesting, and, and this is something I learned through this documentary, is that Auschwitz was much more than simply a, a, a foundry with furnaces where people were, were murdered. In fact, it was a city. It was a whole, like a traveling carnival or circus almost, because, see, they had to bring in all of these Nazi workers from all over Germany, all over the Reich, to work there. And because they were working, they needed a place to live. Because they were living, they had to have stores to buy their food. They had to have entertainment at night and restaurants to go to and symphonies to play their music. And all interspersed through this whole time, you see all of these photos of all of these workers at Auschwitz working there, and they're just having a grand time. They're eating and drinking and raising families and being married and just having a good old time. 
we're literally just hundreds of feet away. Hundreds of thousands are being exterminated in ovens. And they asked the, the accountant, how, how could you do this? How could you do this? And his quote was telling because I think it imbibes this spirit perfectly. He says, I wasn't hurting anyone. I was just collecting money from people who wouldn't need it anymore. Folks, where are you collecting money from people who just don't need it anymore, metaphorically? See, silence and tolerance can be absolutely spiritually lethal, can it? It can be lethal in a marriage. It can be lethal with children. It can be lethal in your community group. It can be lethal for your own soul. You see, tolerance, the wrong kind of tolerance, gives the illusion that nothing is wrong. There's nothing to see here, nothing to see. But ultimately, this doesn't absolve us. It makes us complicit. Now, if you want to know what happens when the spirit of Jezebel is not addressed or nipped initially in the bud, look no further than Pergamum. Remember, Pergamum, we saw last week, had, had nothing, they, they, they struggled with this issue, but there wasn't an organized teaching population, so to speak. There wasn't an organized opposition. There wasn't a camp. It was more organic. It was kind of a vibe. Isn't it interesting that when we come to Thyatira, which is actually a garrison city for Pergamum just down the road, that we find that this isn't just an organic vibe anymore. In fact, it's grabbed hold of the church. You see, Thyatira is what happens when you don't deal with Pergamum. When sin grabs a foothold, we have to ask, see, because discipline begins with the people of God, Four Oaks. Where in my life is Pergamum giving away to Thyatira? What is that thing that's just so easy to partition off, so easy to, to rationalize, so easy to partition so easy to just to compromise, to put aside, to say, that's not that big a deal. That's just, that's just my personal choices, my private things. It doesn't hurt anyone. But all the while, Jesus says it's taking root. Interesting how Jesus responds in this letter. Go back to verse 18. We, we, we said last time, that what happens with each of these letters, that John begins with a vision of Jesus in chapter 1, but when he addresses each of the churches, he, he grabs hold a, a portion of that vision from Jesus, some attribute of Jesus that is most applicable to that church's situation. And when we come to verse 18, what we find here, he says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God. Do you realize this is the only letter... The only letter in Revelation where Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. All the others, it's the Son of Man. And the Son of Man was this idea that, that emphasized Jesus' humanity, that Jesus knew the churches, identified with them, um, was compassionate toward them, and you know, wanted to come alongside of them even in their sin. But here, Son of God, because... He clearly wants to emphasize a different attribute of his character. 
And we know what that is because when we look at this description, look back at verse 18. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. See, these are images that come from Daniel. And remember, they speak of the Almighty who is coming in judgment. And it's interesting, in the ancient Near East, when you walked into a throne room with a king who was seating, seated at an elevated place, and you were kneeling or prostrate before him, what is the feature of that king that would be most prominent initially? It would be his feet. And it would communicate to you that I am low and he is high. I am at his mercy. He, with, with a snap of his fingers, off with my head if he so desired. But he is my sovereign. He is my ruler. I am completely and totally coming under him. That's Jesus in this passage. Eyes, think about, I'm sorry, before we get there, Romans 16, 20. We, we, see this, we see this idea all throughout Scripture. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under what? Your feet. See, that the feet of Jesus is what is emphasized when it talks about Jesus reigning over his enemies. Making his enemies a what? Footstool under his feet. Then it goes on to say, his eyes were like flames of fire. Parents, when you're disciplining your kid and they would rather be looking down at the ground, what is the first thing you say to them? Look at me in the eye. Remember, my parents would do that. My dad still does it. But my parents would do that. And it was like they were seeing to the back of my skull, right? They, could, they weren't just seeing me. They were seeing what? Right through me. They knew, right? They knew. This is the image that is being presented for us, Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Verse 23, I am he who searches heart and mind. Nothing else. We should walk away this morning realizing that Jesus is not merely the Son of Man. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is not to be trifled with. And he will absolutely, ruthlessly eliminate any sort of obstacle or stain that threatens the bride of Christ. No matter how much it hurts her for a time in the process. You know, imagine you take your child in for a medical procedure and the doctor discovers something horrific, something cancerous, some sort of growth, some, something that's deadly wrong. And they're like, we, we have to take it out or your child's life is going to be very threatened. It's, it's, death is almost a certainty if we don't address this. But, but, but caution, it's going to hurt, right? It, it may... It may it may cripple some sort of functioning. There might be some sort of permanent scar or disability. What did Jesus say? It's better to pluck your eye out and go, into the, and go, go around life blind than it is to, to lose your soul. And there's this idea that Jesus is coming to the church in Thyatira to correct her, to correct us, to exhort us, not because he's mean, 
Not because he hates us. Not because he wants to ruin life. But because he loves us. Because he wants to correct us. This is why, in, there's, this is why the letter is being written. Listen, look, go down to verse 22. Or actually 21, it says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent by implication saying, but there's still time for you. There's still time for you. And so I'm here. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, the spirit of Jezebel says we can have it all. Let me ask you this. What is the fundamental spiritual posture of your life? Is it one of tolerance, the bad kind? Yeah, it's okay. Not a big deal. Don't get so worked up. No one, it's, it's let it go, let, the, let it flow, no, big, no biggie. Or is it one of Intolerance. That says, I want to be committed to the same things my Lord is committed to that he wants to eradicate from my life. That's not legalism. That's just gospel. That's holiness. Without which, Peter tells us, no one will see the Lord. And Jesus says, I call you to repent so that I don't have to come and discipline you. What happened to Jezebel, by the way? The last word we hear from Jezebel is that she was pushed out of a window where she broke her neck and dogs came and licked her blood and left nothing but a skull, two palms, and feet. I promise you that's in the Bible, 2 Kings chapter 9. And this is why Jesus says here, Behold, I will throw her into a sick bed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. See, the, the word bed, there's a play on words here. It's like she thought she was enjoying life to the full as Jezebel on her adulterous bed of sexuality. But actually, I'm going to turn what she thinks is her greatest pleasure into certain death. It's going to become her deathbed. It's going to be like Eve eating that apple and it tastes so good until the Lord turns it to gravel in her mouth. And guys, that's what God does for us. That's what God graciously does to us. If you, if you feel like life just keeps hitting a roadblock, you can't find satisfaction, peace, and joy, maybe, maybe, maybe it's because you're looking for it where God never designed that you receive it. But there's good news in this passage. It's good news that it's good news. There's a promise here. Look look down to verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. What is Jesus saying? I came to reign. And one day I am coming back. And for my faithful bride who has turned to me in faith and repentance, she will reign with me. We will be co-heirs together. Jesus won't be the king who's reigning against you. 
You see, the king coming, is John Piper says this, is only good news if the king is coming to do good for you. See, the king is coming back. He's coming to do good for you, for those who know him, who have turned to him in faith and repentance and said, Lord, I'm the Jezebel. See, that's the, that's the dirty little secret, isn't it, this morning? Jezebel is not a special class of, of people in this room. Jezebel is us. You are Jezebel. I am Jezebel. T-shirts, bumper stickers are on their way, even as we speak. But we are. But Jesus came to die for faithless Jezebels like you and me. See, he gave us, he gave up himself in order to give us himself. And that's why he says to he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As I made just a little note here this morning as I was preparing Just where are those areas in my life where I believe God is leading me to a higher degree of spiritual intolerance? I'm not going to read my list, okay? You can write your list. Understanding that this intolerance is not born out of trying to clean myself up like we sang in order to come to Jesus. No, no, no. It's a response to the gracious love and mercy of Jesus who offers himself. Because he says, see, I will give him the morning star. What is the morning star? In scripture, it always refers to God. And Jesus says, I know it's going to be hard in these areas. I know when you shut down that account, when you say no, when you you draw this boundary when you, when, you, when you address the spirit of Jezebel in this, this, and this lot, in this way, I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to hurt. But here, here's what I give you in exchange. I give you myself. I'm going to be with you forever. I'm with you right now. My spirit lives within you. That's what we celebrate when we come to the table this morning. Emmanuel, God with us. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we